When the sun rises, I wake up and chase my dreams. I won't regret when the sun sets, cause I live my life like I'm a beast. What up? You're listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. Today we are wrapping up the Justin Short miniseries. It's funny calling it a miniseries because, you know, when I originally, when we originally talked about it and decided to do the whole miniseries, I don't think we thought it was going to be 12 episodes long, and I don't think we would have expected it to have as much content as it had. I mean, it was just about as big as the first season of this podcast. So anyway, we're wrapping up the Justin Short miniseries, and I really wanted to start today by talking about, um, you know, just as much effort as Justin put into this whole thing. He just put in a ton of time and, you know, out of all the guests that I've had on the show, I don't think I've had one who's prepared for each episode as many, you know, as much effort as he put into each one. And then as many as we did, you know, we did 12 or 11 and he put in so much effort and time into each episode. And, you know, you can tell when you listen to it because it's just so polished and he's, he composes himself well. He shares a ton of great content. And so we were very lucky to have him on for the whole miniseries. And I can assure you that this is not the last you'll hear of Justin on this podcast. Um, you know, when I go through my acquisition, hopefully he'll be on talking to me about that. And before we dive into the um, the whole purpose of this episode, I just wanted to throw one last shout out to Justin, um, the lifestyle practice. I'll go ahead and leave a link in the description. Um, Justin, go, you know, he has his website, the lifestyle practice and his mailing list. And I'm on his email list and we talked about it in his first episode on the show. But it's just a really, really good mailing list. You know, he just shares very practical tips. And I think if you like the content that he has in his course, in this mini-series, um, you know, you would really, really benefit from his email list. It's not annoying, and he just offers great value. So I'd, I'll put a link in the description. And then for anybody who, like myself, is wanting to use Justin as a coach, um, I actually had asked Justin, you know, when does he recommend signing up and starting the coaching? when you're buying a practice. And his advice for us pre-owners in the audience, the majority of us are pre-owners, was to sign up for the course or his TLP Academy. And it's funny, he actually said if it was his son, he would make him do the course 10 times before buying a practice. And then um, after he's done the course over and over again and those everything's ingrained, then he would buy the practice or you know, whenever he bought the practice. And maybe like a month in advance, so one to two months before he actually closed on the practice, he would actually start the coaching. And that's kind of what I'm planning on doing. You know, Justin and I, we have a great relationship because of the podcast, but if I didn't have the podcast, you know, that's that's exactly how I would do it. And, um, you know, I think it's just great to go maybe right before the acquisition um, because that way you're able to get all of your, you know, vision in place and everything that you want to do in a game plan moving forward so that when you get in the practice, you can be consistent with the staff and, um, I think that would really allow us to hit the ground running. So back to today's episode. This episode is going to be one I've been looking forward to since we, you know, this is when I added on. This is not something that Justin, you know, routinely um, talks a whole lot about um, with without people that are necessarily interested. But, um, you know, we've talked so much about how to grow practice, how to cut overhead, you know, how to have a high income. And then I think it's important to know, I think, what to do with that income when you obtain it. You know, what What do you spend it on? What do you invest in? And Justin, uh, for those of you who don't know, 
um, or didn't listen to the end of last week's episode, Justin is big on real estate investing. Um, he's been doing it for a long time. Um, he's had a lot of properties and, you know, he's, you know, built a great source of income for himself, you know, where he, you know, does not necessarily have to practice clinical dentistry anymore to, you know, support himself. And I think that's very valuable to, that's a very valuable experience. And so without further ado, welcome back, Justin Short. Thank you, G-Unit. It's nice to be with you again. And I know you are big on using uh, practice income to build wealth and income outside of your practice. So I think this is an important concept. So can you kind of go into this a little bit more for our listeners? I think the key in what you just asked uh, for me is the part of that saying using the practice income. If you have an average practice, and I know average can be relative, but if your practice is just doing okay, it's really hard to get ahead and have disposable income to invest outside um, of just living your life unless you scrimp and save yourself to death. And personally, I don't feel like you can scrimp and save yourself to wealth. I'm all for being wise and putting some money away, but my vision was never to live off like 20% of my income, save the rest, and then hopefully one day be able um, to retire. That just didn't sound like any fun to me personally. And honestly, it just sounded like a weak way out. All that to say, uh, I always condone working on getting your practice where it needs to be first. Get it successful, get the profit coming in, make sure it's optimized, then use your income to create more wealth passively outside of your office. Also, I know that that's not something that everyone is interested in. I get it. Um, some are happy just being a dentist and making a good income and writing it out. And I think if that's you, then that's awesome. That's your jam, as my daughter would say, then more power to you. I just knew for me personally, although if, you know, if I had to do a job, dentistry is what I want to do. But building passive income outside of my practice is what would allow me to walk away at some point, regardless if I decided to act on it. I still wanted that option to not have to practice if I didn't want to. And you know, Justin, um, from people I've talked to, I've been lucky enough to talk to some pretty successful people. And yep. um, most of them are have reached a wealth where they don't necessarily have to practice. And from talking to them, I get the feeling that the, f the need to not have to practice makes practicing much more enjoyable. Um, and would you agree with that? <laughs> um, kinda. Well, before we go into that, can you talk about your plans um, from retiring from hands-on dentistry? I think that's necessary for this part of the conversation. Yeah, let me, um, actually, I would like to keep that qu question you just asked, but I would like to go back to the, the Not, question you just asked. Sure. Because I found it very interesting, because that's what I was expecting. You know, I was expecting once I reached that level where I didn't have to go into the office anymore, then I'd be like, Oh man, this is great. It's my choice. But what I realized for me, and I'm just being honest, and it's totally not what I expected, is that it didn't really make it more enjoyable. I found myself like, this is like bare the truth. Um, I found myself driving to the office, um, leaving my kids and passing golf courses and stuff like that. No, and just thinking like, 
what the hell am I doing? Like, I don't have to do this anymore. I mean, I like dentistry, but there's a lot of other things I like doing more. I know that can be taboo to say, but I'm just throwing it out there. Not being ungrateful to our profession, but I found myself driving to work, like I said, thinking, what am I doing? I don't have to do this anymore. What else could I be doing with my time? What other, you know, maybe even professionally, like what other things could I pursue, et cetera, et cetera. So I know that the right answer is, you know, I just started loving it once or loving it even more. But truth is that wasn't, that's not the truth for me. I'm really happy you, you know, were honest with us about that, you know, because I don't don't think most of our audience has reached that point, I'd imagine, where most of us have, you know, pre-ownership or, you know, new owners. And so, you know, to hear that from somebody who thought it was going to be one way and turns out it's another way, you know, I think maybe that reason is why, leading into my second question, you know, why you changed the course of your career. Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Am I right in saying that? Yeah. As you know, I mean, I'm just going to throw it out there. You and I have talked about it. And I don't mind sharing with this audience because primarily because I know this episode will not be released until after everything is said and done. But I'm scheduled to sell my practice and retire from hands-on dentistry on October 2nd. So in theory, I have three more days next week of practicing dentistry. So that's my uh, life change. And that's, you know, as you said, when this episode comes out, you know, you will not be, you know, practicing clinical dentistry anymore, which I think is pretty incredible. You know, that's, you'll be in your first couple weeks off, which, you know, that is what a great accomplishment. And was that your plan all along? Um, Yes and no. I think in my mind, it has always been a goal. But I didn't really think of it as a possibility um, or anything more than just a pipe dream um, until about five years ago, at which time, actually, I remember the exact time we were on vacation um, in Florida in a pool and me and my wife were talking and I just said, I'm going to retire by 37 or at least get to that place. I didn't know exactly how I'd feel once I got to that place, but I knew I wanted to have the ability to do that. So I set the goal of being able to retire by 37 if I chose to. You know, and you're like 100 now? Thank you, George. Um, I'm 38. (laughs) 38 now. So thank you for rubbing it in, G-Unit, that I did not hit my goal. (laughs) Actually, I probably could have pulled it off towards the end of 37, but I just felt it was wise to get a few more ducks in a row. And looking back, I think it was a good decision to hold off six more months. And be a failure. Yeah, that definitely a good idea to fail. You know, that's, that's what you've been talking about this whole time. Right. So, yeah, good for that. But, um, you know, I think it's it maybe for our listeners who don't think they'll ever want to be in that place. I think at least, you know, we advise you to try to get to that place. You know, if you're not going to retire, great. You know, you'll have extra income. But, um, you know, I think you would agree with that, Justin, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the benefit of getting to that place where you don't have to. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. Why wouldn't you want to get to that place? I mean, it's, I see nothing um, bad that comes from being in a position of having the choice, regardless if you choose to act on that or not. So, you know, I think it's kind of difficult to know exactly when you are in that place. It's not like a set 
like, you know, line you're here and you're not. So how did you know that you were ready financially to, uh, you know, quit hands-on dentistry? I had set up certain benchmarks. Like I wanted to make sure our home was paid off. I wanted a certain amount of rental properties paid off. I wanted a certain amount of passive income coming in each month. I wasn't, you know, kind of going to what we've talked about all along in this series is I wasn't willing to retire and have to cut back on our lifestyle. You know, I think, again, like many things in life, you can have the choices or it's easy to get to one choice or the other. It may be, it's easier to retire and cut back your lifestyle. So I wanted both. And I knew if I, if I wanted to accomplish this, um, I had to figure it out and put in the effort starting many years ago to get to this point. I think most dentists can do it, but it comes down to figuring out what you really want and being willing to put in the effort that it takes to get there. I don't think I'm something special. I had a goal and I was really OCD about it. And also it's not like I won't work. I actually love working um, probably too much. It's the having to be at a certain place for a certain amount of time each day to make money that I didn't like. You know, I'm st- I'll still be investing in real estate. You know, it's it's weird how as I've approached this date, um, more investing opportunities have come out of the woodwork, and I'm still going to be doing coaching with TLP. None of those things do I really consider work, though. <clears throat> I enjoy them too much. Also, you know, I think my clients are going to benefit because I'm going to have even more time to be focused on them. So, but the nice thing about it, all those things. I can pretty much do from wherever I want and whenever I want for the most part. That's something I can really relate with is um, that feeling of having to be in a specific place, you know, and um, you know, what got you started into real estate and why did you pick real estate? I think it really started a long time ago, George, before there's electricity. When uh, my dad gave me a copy of rich dad, poor dad, when I was in college, the book early on in college, the book changed my life. And it was a great fit because I really find real estate investing interesting, which I think it helps. I ended up flipping my first house in dental school. I don't know if we touched on that, which is really dumb. And I spent a lot of time on it and eventually broke even on it. But for whatever reason, I was hooked. I also, I personally, I just don't have a lot of faith in stocks bonds, Wall Street kind of things, nor does that interest me. And the more I learned about those investments, the more I felt like I couldn't compete in that area. I feel like I have more control in real estate investing. Um, and I feel like if you do it right, it's safer. Um, that could just be my opinion. And I like the monthly cash flow and tax benefits it can provide. So that's why I chose real estate. And I'm going to kind of take an aside to about you and talk about me for a little bit. Um, the uh, you know, first of all, my dad, um, did not give me rich dad, poor dad. I found it in my first year of dental school and that book actually changed my life too. Um, so much so that I gave it to my dad as a Christmas gift, um, you know, this past year. And it was kind of awkward because, you know, in the book, I think he is my poor dad, you know? <laughs> and so, um, you know, that was a little bit funny, but also, you know, I think, um, just the, you know, one of the Robert Kiyosaki is a big, you know, idol of mine and, 
you know, one of the things he talks about is investing in something you're interested in or that you have that passion for that will allow you to have more control and more, you know, so I think it's really, you know, that, that mindset is really showing on the reason why you picked real estate and the way you invest in it. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, that was a cool story. And I want to be, I mean, I wrote that book not only for like investment and mind stuff and mindset stuff and inspiration, but really as a, like a parenting book that I want to be the rich dad for my kids. Cause my dad was the same way. He's a great dad. As far as dads go, you know, I wouldn't trade, but he wasn't necessarily the rich dad either. Um, and if I, honestly, if I had to pick someone between being a great rich dad or just being a great loving dad, I would pick the great loving dad. But the book has pushed me to, I want to be both for my kids. You know, I, I take them and this is totally on the side and I'm sorry for everyone who's listening and probably bored all three of you, <laughs> you know, but I, I will take my kids with me when I go look at properties or it's kind of embarrassing, but they refer to them as our little houses. So we drive around and I tell them, you know, like what's dad looking at? Why are we going to this house? Who are these people that live in our houses? Why do they live in our houses? How does that help us? So I try to walk them through, you know, a lot of times they're, they're bored to death. I mean, they're still young, but I'm just trying to ingrain it into their head so they get it. Um, so yeah, that had no bearing on anything we've discussed. Yeah, so that was pretty worthless. Thanks. Um, no, you. I thought that was, no, I thought that was great. And, um, you know, I have a new son now, so, um, that's definitely something that I think financial education is something that's very important to me, but going back to real estate, um, what kind of properties do you invest in? You know, there's a lot of different ways you can invest in real estate. So what is your kind of your niche? My niche is strip clubs. I buy them cheap and then I just kind of build them up and the commercial real estate. Right. That's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> no, first off, I think there's many ways to invest in real estate. I know the way I do it is not for everyone. So I think knowing what you have an interest in and the, and the time you're willing to put in dictates a lot of what makes something the best investment for you. Personally, I bought and sold and flipped and held probably about a hundred properties in the past eight to 10 years. I currently have about 50 properties that we hold um, and rent. When I say we, it's me and my wife. She, she really is not that involved. Like literally this is like a lot of Thursdays or Fridays when we're going to buy a property, I'll be like, Hey, we have a closing in an hour. Um, she's like, okay, but she's still my other half, my better half. Like I said, we have about 50 properties in St. Louis, which is a decent rental market. You know, I can buy three bedroom, two baths for 70 to 80,000 in decent areas and rent them for 11 to $1,200. So those are decent returns. I know there are some listeners out there who are thinking there's no way you could get those returns where they live. And for a lot of them, I'd probably say you're probably right. However, there are also some great turnkey companies where they buy, they fix up, they rent, they manage, and all you do is just purchase them and collect a cash flow. So to me, this day and age with the internet and every all those good companies out there, some sucks, so you gotta be careful. There's, it's just not an excuse. But going back to your original question, I, I buy single family homes. Um, in multi-family homes, we I have bought from duplexes up to 26 units uh, so far. And do you currently uh, hold the 26-unit property? Do you hold on to it? Is that what you have now? 
That's actually kind of a, a long story, but no. So I purchased that property. I think we'll touch on this a little bit later on in this episode. But one of my biggest strengths is just knowing my market really good. Like I focus on a certain few zip codes. I try to learn everything I can about those. And then I can really tell when something is undervalued or a really good deal. So I saw these properties, this property come up for sale. And I knew right away with like two seconds, this is undervalued. Um, I purchased it for 1.3275, so 1 million. 327,500 and it appraised for 1,680,000 before I purchased before I closed. Prices continued to increase. Um, I had a, I put 10% down, so you know I put like 130 down or something and I knew I got a good deal on it. So, and it's in a good area, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if it was the agent who had listed them or the sellers, they just did not know the value. Um so I had them under contract that first day. So that was January of last year. So the day we closed the summer, I sold off 16 of those units and was left. I kept the 10 best units of those. I still owe 160000 on them, which I will pay off when my practice sells next week. So that puts, and they just got appraised for 950000 So I will have, what is it, 300000 in it, of my own money into that deal and be sitting on 10 units paid off free and clear. So that's the story on the 26 unit, George, I wasn't planning on getting into, but there it is. Thank you. And, you know, um, I think let's go back to that. Um, you know, I think you make a great point and it's it's necessary. You know, I, I think you may undersell sometimes how much time you spend looking at deals in your market to know it that well. So can you kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah. Um, in a nutshell, the, like I said, the way I find the good investments, um, I research and run the numbers. Probably how you are with like dental practices. I am that way with real estate. This is my, this is where I geek out. This is where I'm very nerdy. But the difference between you and I, I think, is that this is really the only area in my life that I'm really a nerd, where you are much more robust. Um, I can't even so, deny it. I'm just sitting no. here like, yeah, he knows me. <laughs> <laughs> so how I do it, um, you know, is I focus, like I said, on a specific few zip codes around St. Louis. I don't try to be a jack of all trades. I don't try to dominate the entire St. Louis market because I know I can't, especially when I have another job or two jobs or three jobs, whatever I have at this point. So like literally for probably eight to 10 years, and still even today, I mean, I do it almost every day, not every day now, but almost every day. But for eight to 10 years, I would look every single day, regardless if I was on vacation, not on vacation, sick, not sick. I would look at the properties that fit my criteria that came on the market. Um, and also just as importantly, I would look at what sold in my areas that fit my criteria. And that is what really helped me determine what was a good deal and what wasn't or isn't a good deal. You know, I, I think of the book, uh, I think it's the outliers when they say like 10,000 hours and I know I've put a good 10,000 hours into it. So the time that I put in was how I got or how I get my edge. Like I said, I wasn't a full real estate agent or person. I didn't have endless amounts of money at my disposal, 
But after my kids go to bed and my wife is watching Bachelorette next to me, I'd be on the computer looking at properties. So my edge was when a good deal hit the market, I can recognize it right away and I get it under contract right away. And to find those deals, I, I use, well, we'll see if we get into that. I won't, I won't keep rambling. So Sure. And no, just real quick before we go on, you know, in terms of your specific market, how did you select those zip codes that you operate in? Is it convenience or did you look at some sort of population pattern or, you know, the types of properties you're looking for happen to be in those zip codes? <laughs> um, again, I think it comes to research. Like I have one area that I'm going to try to simplify this so it's, you know, it doesn't bore everybody, but I have one area in St. Louis that I only buy single family residences because it's a decent area. Everyone keeps up their stuff. It's not like overly fancy. Um, it's kind of an older area, but you know, the yards are nice and people keep up their stuff and it's fairly safe, but I can get houses there. Like I said, 70, 80,000, three bedrooms, two baths, a nice yard. Um, they will rent for 11 to 1200. Now in my other zip code, now that area is kind of like right on the border. I don't want to have multifamilies in that area because multifamilies in that area um, gets a tenant class that I don't like. Uh, not that I don't like, but that honestly that I don't want to deal with renting to. Definitely wasn't supposed to come off then, but um, but I mean, and then there's another where I buy my multifamilies that if I would buy single family residences in the same zip code that I buy my multifamilies, I would be paying 120,000 to 140 or 50,000 for those same three bedroom, two bath house that I can get 11 and $1,200 rent. But because it's in a nicer area, I get a little higher tenant class in the multifamilies for that area. So it really is trial and error research, watching the market, um, and just knowing the areas, being able to drive them, look at them, and being from St. Louis my whole life definitely helped. You know, if I didn't, if I wasn't from St. Louis or somewhere that was good to invest in rental-wise, I would probably maybe travel that, to that area. I would have to depend much more heavily on someone else, um, that that is their job that I trusted, but I would still figure it out. And so when you're when you're looking at a property, we talked about, you know, you recognize value and prices and whatnot. But what what do you what else are you looking for? When looking for buy and hold, I always look for two things in particular. I want to make a good monthly cash flow after all my bills are paid. And I want to get such a good deal on that property that I know if I had to if I had to, I could sell it tomorrow and get my money back. I have a very low threshold to be able to sleep at night. Um, I don't prefer to put all my chips on the table on one big gamble. So I really want a good deal. And then I will put 20 to 30% down on top of that when I purchase. So at the end of the day, I owe about 60% on the property of what it's worth. That way, if I need out or if the market tanks, I'm still always right side up in that property. And, you know, I want to kind of just explain that a little bit. It's, it's a great real estate investing concept. Um, you know, you put 20 to 30% down. So, you know, if you were paying what would be market value for that property, then you would owe 70, 80% of, you know, you'd owe 70, 80%. But what Justin said is he owes 60% because he's paying below market value. So ideally he should be able to sell that property for higher. 
um, right. and then that way he owes he owes less than you know, and that that gives him some some cushion for risk. And so I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, I mean, I in theory I should be able to sell the house the next day for more than when I paid for it, but I'm talking fire sale some reason something happened in our lives where we really need that money we need that equity out i can sell without having to bring money back to the closing table if i had to never happened but i always want to be in that position yep and then do you manage you know you got uh, like 50 units yourself um do you do you manage any yourself um not anymore i did manage all the properties up until about 20 um but that was enough for me i knew my time was more valuable spent doing other things. So now I, I don't manage any of them. Okay. And, um, you know, not sure if you will answer this, maybe too personal, but uh, what type of cash flow were you looking for to be able to, like, you could sell your practice? Like, what kind of monthly income did you want to have? Good question, George. It is personal, but I think if I was listening uh, to this, which I wouldn't be. This is a question I'd want to know. Let me keep it just a little bit more broad, but I will say that in order to retire, the monthly cash flow or the goal that I set, and this is just from, solely from real estate, doesn't include TLP or other outside investments. Um, I set the goal of at least 20,000 a month of passive income solely from real estate before I retired. And that was on top of, you know, having, you know, our cars are paid off, our our house is paid off. Um, so there were other things like 20000 a month, if I still had all those bills, still wouldn't be feasible. But that, that was kind of like my threshold minimum. And then, you know, I know one of the things that appealed to me in terms of, you know, coaching with you was this kind of coaching, you know, not only dentistry but outside of dentistry is that something you typically do with your clients i know i mean i'm signing on for it so you better right right um i would say sure if they have interest it's definitely not something i push you know first and foremost i work with doctors to get their practice performing at a level where they have options to do this kind of stuff but if this isn't their bag then no sweat i don't even mention it and some do some don't but we never put the cart before the horse. First, we want to optimize, like I said, the practice. That's your bread and butter. That's your fuel for creating wealth outside of the practice. And that's where you're going to get the best ROI. I know your podcast is familiar with Derek Williams, who you've had on a couple times. We just started our second year together, and he is starting to buy properties. He buys his first one um, in early October. So we've looked at many properties. He's found some good deals, and he's starting to jump in, and he has some goals for passive income over the next couple of years. So, um, but same thing. You know, we started off, main focus was getting his practice to where it needed to be. If your practice is struggling or you're just getting by, um, it makes it much tougher to really start to create wealth outside of your office. So first things first, but, yeah, we definitely go into it. So when somebody has made that decision where they want to invest in real estate now, um, you know, what are the next steps? Where do they get started? First thing I would say is start reading some books on the topics. I have, you know, I've got a lot of friends that like see what I'm doing with real estate. And they're all like, oh, bro, I want to do that. I got to get some properties. I got to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, read this book. 
read this book, come back, let's talk about it, let's sit down. And then, you know, they start off, they're gung-ho, like, bro, I'm two chapters in this book, it's it's rocking my face. And then, like, I don't hear from them again. Uh, besides, like, friendship, I don't hear from them about this topic anymore. I'll ask them a couple months later, hey, did you finish this book? Like, oh, I got stuck, I got busy, blah, blah, blah. So, like, that just tells me you're not very interested. And I just realized, like, I made all my friends just sound like stoner surfer dudes, didn't I? <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Bro, short, tell me how to real estate invest. Uh, so. And what book is that again? Right. It's uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Okay. Just wanted to so, make sure. Yeah. So basically the only people I hang around with is Crush, the turtle from uh, <laughs> uh, Finding Dory. Anyways, back on topic, George. Back on topic. I'd say start reading books. Number one, like I said, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but that's only one. There's a lot. Then if it was me um, or if it was my son that came and asked me, I would say start listening to every single Bigger Pockets podcast. And then I'd start just looking at properties online and learning to run the numbers. But I love Bigger Pockets, and I think I probably have listened to every podcast at least once. It just inspires me. You know, I don't always learn something new, sometimes I do. But if nothing else, it just keeps me engaged and fired up all the time. But then learning to run the numbers. You know, for instance, if you buy a house, $100,000, you put 20% down. You have a loan on 80000 at 5% interest for 20 years. Figure out that, that number. You have $1,500 in taxes, $800 in insurance, a manager at 8%, and you rent that house for $1,200. How much do you have left over each month? Then... You know, you subtract $100 a month for maintenance, 5% for vacancy, and again, what are you left with now? So you just start easing into it. I mean, just look at some houses on Zillow, Craigslist, MLS, have some um, real estate agents, tell them what you're looking for, have them just set you up on an automatic email where you just start receiving all the properties that fit the criteria that hit the market in your area, um, and just start running the numbers, get comfortable with it. And over time, and it doesn't take super long. You start to see, okay, this is a good deal. This is not a good deal. Why did this house, why does this house list for this much and this house list for this much? What's the differences that they have? Um, obviously, a lot to cover in one 45-minute to an hour podcast, but those are start to think, things I start to look at. You know, if you like the idea of investing but aren't that interested to be hands-on, start researching turnkey companies. Bigger Pockets is a great resource for that too. But like anything else in life, it's not going to happen on its own. You have to put in the work in the beginning to gain the skills and knowledge. It's not rocket science, but it does take effort. Whether it's my practice or investing, I like to put the work in early on so I don't have to later on. It takes work, but now at 38, I can sit around and watch soap operas all day. So let's pay it all. And you know, I, I just quick thing about bigger pockets. Um, that's like the dead of town of real estate. I think I'll think that's a pretty good description of it. Yep. Yeah. Except I, you don't get kicked off as easily. <laughs> Hogo isn't there monitoring all the forums. Um, <laughs> I have been kicked off the town. Um, okay. Well, um, you know, bigger pockets. I love bigger pockets. I'm happy you said that. That's always like the resource that I mention when people ask me about real estate. Um, and so, Speaking of which, um, retiring, you know, what do you plan on doing? Like once you're free, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but you know, what are you, um, like actually, what are you planning on doing? Well, professionally, 
the the first thing I will be doing is spending more time uh, on the lifestyle practice and growing that. I just really enjoy working with doctors to accomplish big things. I love it. It's actually very, very fulfilling for me. So, but I'll also continue to build uh, the real estate business. And I have a few other projects um, or investments that I'll be working on or investing in. Personally, I'm just super excited about this transition. I kind of feel like a kid entering a long-term summer break. And I don't know, I could sink or swim and we'll figure it out. I think you've definitely earned it. Um, you know, I just, yeah, I mean, it, what you've accomplished is pretty incredible. And, um, you know, I'm excited for you, um, you know, as, as a friend, um, to see you kind of go through this and, um, you know, I, I think, I think our listeners have a lot to learn from you. Um, and you know, this is kind of the end of the content in the mini series. And I think this was a great conclusion because it's a little bit different, but, um, you know, it's what I think real estate is a great path to what you're doing, you know, and it, you took it and it's, it's awesome that you're actually there. Thank you. Break a sweat, cause I live my life like it's all I got.